Welcome to Voices of Care, the podcast series from New Cross Healthcare that seeks to get to the heart of the issues facing the health and social care system by speaking to leaders that are truly enabling the healthcare workforce of the future. I'm Sahel Mirza, and rarely, if ever, has the healthcare workforce been more prominent in the news. Unprecedented strikes, and some saying that the system is facing an existential crisis. The system is actually required to deliver, among other things, safe, effective and compassionate care. And there can be few better people qualified to discuss that than my guest today, Ian Trenholm, the Chief Executive of the Care Quality Commission. Ian, welcome and uh, great to have you on today. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's an extraordinary time. Um, Your state of uh, care report uh, clearly described a system in gridlock. 165,000 vacancies at the time in social care, 133,000 in the NHS. We've had guests uh, on our podcast series describing this in terms of workforce as the worst crisis that the system has ever seen. Mm. There really is an ex- extraordinary crisis at the moment. What, what's your view? I, I, would, I would agree. I mean, I think we, in our state of care report last year, we, we used the term gridlock. We said it's a system which is in gridlock. And I think, there's, you know, when we unpack that, I think what we have to recognise is people's experience of care is defined more by the way they move between providers as much as it is uh, their experience of, of an individual provider. So we look, at it, we look at the quality of care of an individual provider, but increasingly what we're seeing is, is the backlogs, is the, the delays are, are causing people harm, and, that, and that's because the system is gridlocked. So people are stuck. You know, they're stuck in, in an ambulance waiting to go into a hospital because there are no beds. They're stuck in hospital because they can't get out because they need some sort of some sort of social care. And, and that that is that is going to mean that people will ultimately ultimately come to come to harm. And so what we talked about was a system in, in gridlock. What we said you know, the, the, to a large extent, that's because the, there's, there's been some historic underfunding in social care in particular. And whilst the story around social care has definitely improved over uh, over the COVID period, people have people have understood the, the vital role that social care plays in the system as a whole. We find that still that needs investment. You know, so the, the fact that, that the public widely understands social care doesn't mean any more money is really going into social care. And that, and that historic underfunding is is problematic. And then you, you overlay that with workforce, you overlay that with, with the geopolitics of, of today, um, the, co- the costs of, of goods and services, the costs of power, uh, a very globally mobile health and care workforce. You know, there's a number of things that have come together now, which I, I think I would agree uh, means that, that you know, you know, this is one of the most difficult times the health and care system has, has ever faced. And I think added to that, of course, we've had um, unprecedented uh, strike action mm. uh, right across, of course, nursing, the junior doctors uh, have now voted for that. Um, what's your view in terms of the potential impact of prolonged strike action, if that is what happens, uh, on patient care and uh, the treatment in hospitals? Yeah, I mean, as, as a regulator, it's not our job to, to comment on the, the rightness or otherwise of, of strikes, as you as you would expect. But you know, but but stands to reason that you know, if the NHS has got a ten percent vacancy rate, there's similar vacancy rates in, in in social care. If people are are going on strike, there's fewer people at work. It's meaning that that um, that procedures are being cancelled. That leads to more delays. So so you know, the the, the, the strikes are are not a good thing. I think because it, there, there are fewer people at work. Um, I, I'm really welcome uh, the, the, uh, the 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 talks that are going on at the moment between the RCN and and, um, uh, and government, uh, and, and hopefully that will that will move us in in the right direction, uh, and we can get back to to, to to a more normal service. But you know, I think the concern that we've got, I think, is what we've seen over the last 
the last three years really during COVID is is just a, a workforce which is genuinely exhausted. And whilst I think people, you know, are, are relying on their vocation and, and, and their desire to deliver great quality care, I think the reality is people are exhausted. And I think when you get to that point, it's really it's really tough to deliver the sort of quality of care that you went into the profession to deliver. No, absolutely. And just touching upon social care, you, you highlighted that uh, in your opening. We've had guests such as Dr. Jane Townsend from the Home Care Association, Professor Martin Green, Care England, mm-hmm. really calling it an existential crisis yeah. for social care. The State of Care report talked about a lack of recognition Mm. Um, New Cross Healthcare's care survey uh, commission, where we commissioned uh, uh, YouGov found that 27% of care workers surveyed said they were likely to leave the mm. uh, profession within the next 12 months. So mm. it sounds like in social care in particular, uh, the crisis is, if not perennial, it, it's, it's almost permanent. Yes, it, it, it is. And I, I think I, I think we've, we've been calling out for a number of years this real concern around turnover in, in social care. What we've seen typically is somewhere between 30 and 40% of the workforce leave social care organisations in, in a given year, which is a, an incredibly high number for, for, for any sector. And most sectors would struggle to keep skills, keep experience in if they're seeing that level of turnover. Um, but I think in the past, we've seen people who maybe leave the sector for a short period of time and then come back to it. And there are certain parts of the country where there's a, there's a, a you know, long-standing tradition of people going into hospitality in the summer and then coming into care in the winter and, and vice versa. So that often there's, a, there's a, le- a level of turnover, but it's, but it's the same group of people that are working within the sector. I, and I think in the past, other sectors like retail, uh, hospitality and so forth have, have paid maybe the same or slightly more. Um, and so there, there is a group of people that maybe cycle, cycle in, those, in those sectors. What we're seeing now is a very big difference between what care workers are being paid and what people are being paid in retail and hospitality. And I think that there's a danger that the adult social care sector overtrades on the notion of vocation, um, and it gets to the point where you know vocation and and that that positivity that you get from working in care doesn't pay the electricity bill, it doesn't pay the rent, and and I think that's what we're starting to see. And the worry that I, I've got, I think, is if you've got um, you know 10, 15 percent vacancy rates on an ongoing basis in 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 care, then. I think what you'll start to see is not being able to fill those 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 vacancies and overseas recruitment, which is what's being used in the NHS quite extensively at the moment, um, is 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 going to work much less well in social care. So clearly, a time for government to act before this steps out of mm. control. I guess I, I think so. Although you know, there's the, the danger. There's a danger, I think, of of sort of saying government should should act, but that and then you know, looking for one big thing. I, I don't think there are any quick fixes. My my thing, the thing that government could do, I think, is a long-term sustainable funding solution because I, I think that the danger is that what happens is each winter, some version of funding for the next three, four months, if you're a, an operator in, 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 in the, the social care market, you are not going to make long-term funding decisions. You are not going to give long-term pay rises to your teams you're not going to take on additional permanent staff you're not going to invest in in buildings i mean you know one of the things which which often isn't talked about is that you know about half of the 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 uh, the care homes in this country are about 50 plus years old um and, and the practical consequence of that is you know lines of sight uh what width of corridors moving and handling just becomes difficult um and you know as a as a care operator if you haven't got long-term funding in place you're not going to be able to go to the bank and borrow the money to build a new care home so so and that translates into into staffing ratios which are suboptimal a whole range of detail points 
but they all track back to needing a long-term sustainable funding solution. I'd like to also uh, move now to some of the comments that you've made in terms of uh, there is a lot of great care that is taking Mm. place, Mm. Uh, points of light, I Mm. think, uh, which is a great phrase, and to join those up. I'd like to begin just by looking at the CQC's own stance. You've revised your strategy, you have a business plan uh, over the next uh, couple of years, and the phrase of smarter regulation, can you expand upon that? Because I think that has a vital role as an independent regulator across the entire health and care system. What does that mean and what do you see as the impact for care delivery and also for workforce? Yeah, I I think there's a number of things in that. Uh, We we created a new strategy um, a year or so ago. And what we were trying to reflect in that strategy was the the two-pronged role that we play. We we play a role which is around providing the public with assurance around safety and quality. It's the thing we're known for. It's that, you know, we we, we discharge that responsibility by producing reports, which people read and so forth. So it's almost the judging role. Um, The other side of our role, though, which, which is less often talked about is the the need to promote improvement Uh, and that's more of a coaching role i suppose and what we tend to do is trying to look for examples of good practice but be they big or small uh, call those out in our reports aggregate them produce thematic reports and so forth Um, and that's the way we've traditionally operated in in our in our new strategy we talked about being a smarter regulator and that's about trying to break down the questions that we ask uh, into into smaller bite-sized chunks be able to report on them almost question by question and that gives us the opportunity i think to showcase very specific uh, pieces of of good work Um, it enables us to start to signpost people to areas where maybe they're not performing quite so well but we can say look we know up the road there's somebody who's doing this really good piece of work you know we're never going to be in the management consulting business that's not what we do and i don't think any regulator will ever be in that place but what i want to be able to do is to be able to 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 take that privilege that we have of being able to see every part of health and social care deal with the things that need to be dealt with in terms of the difficulties but also identify the things that are going really well and then highlight those and amplify them um, so that we can get to a point where those those pieces of good practice are scaled really quickly and because at the moment you know someone does something and someone says i'm doing something fantastic and someone up the road says i've been doing that for three years um and and that that, that's that's for it's good in one sense in the sense there's innovation going on but it isn't being scaled in in a really consistent way and i think as a regulator we can potentially play a part in that and of course looking to the you know looking into the the future um we've we've got a, a new role around integrated care systems and around providing assurance around what local authorities are doing on their care act duties and if you take those two responsibilities together it puts us into a profoundly different place because it means that we can look at what's going on in individual providers but we can also look at what's going on in places and start to call out some of these issues around things like commissioning some of these issues around people's experience issues around inequalities in areas these are things which we've not traditionally been able to do a huge amount of work on so i think that that bringing all of that together and, and then looking at some of the things we're doing in the background in terms of how how easy we are to do business with as, a, as an organization and that's what we mean by smarter regulation and it's uh, I, I guess a corollary of that is it's it's a dynamic uh, process as well in terms of interacting and iterative i wanted to expand a bit on the uh, health and care act and the 
integrated care system. It's a statutory landscape. It's transformative. And you, as you said, your duty in terms of and your core mission regarding inequalities, tackling that fundamental issue. Do you see that also as a means of perhaps helping a systems approach to workforce? Because traditionally, there's been so much competition, as you know, between um, the different silos of workforce and even within systems, within trusts that are competing with each other. Just wanted to get your vision on that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I think I think there has been a, an element of competition. The NHS generally pays a little better, like for like, than than the care than than than, than the care service uh, or care services. Um, and it's quite difficult, I think, for for individual care providers to to compete. Oftentimes, you'll have a, an owner operator of a service or maybe a service that's got a, you know a handful of, of of care homes in in, an, in a geographic area competing with a large you know billion pound turnover uh, uh, foundation trust. So it, it's a diff- it has been a difficult thing to do, and I don't also think that that certainly hospitals in the past have completely understood the impact that they have. You know, as as they attract workforce in, they don't necessarily understand the workforce implications of of the care system, and then they've then they've realised that there isn't the care that they the social care that they need to discharge people from hospital. So, I think people have definitely got that recently. I think the the opportunity for ICSs is, is to is to really take a different view to all of this. To sort of say, well, what does it feel like to be an eighteen year old who lives in Leeds or Manchester or Liverpool and excite them about working in health and social care and then paint a picture for them that shows them how they can find their way to being the chief executive of a a care home group or they can find their way to being the chief executive of the local hospital. Both of those outcomes are possible uh, and and they can be visualised for that 18-year-old because I think that you know, in, in the past, we've kind of assumed that everybody just recruits people and, and it, things will happen. I think we've we've seen in the last couple of years, in particular, real difficulties around recruitment, and and that, and, that, and there needs to be a more sophisticated uh, approach to that. And I think ICS is offer that that opportunity but i think you know icss can do can do other things as well i think i think you know icss can start to 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 look at things like shared spaces they can look at um you know they can look at the the costs of doing business and and look at sharing of costs and a whole range of other things and you know we don't often talk about just the the profitability of adult social care services you know and and they're not profitable and so if it's not profitable there will come a point where those businesses will shut down and I think I think sometimes the publicly funded care isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily properly understand that 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 if if it's not if things are not properly funded if if there isn't if there aren't efforts made to, around apprenticeships around schooling around you know around qualifications and so forth there's a real danger that that the workforce just simply isn't there. And I think um, if we delve into that slightly, because there's obviously a transformation that's envisioned by the long-term plan, uh, move into community, a hospital, um, clinical supply there, GPs. I guess, given your role, that's also another opportunity where there can be collaboration across boundaries which have been traditionally siloed. Yeah, I mean, I think this that, this is something which I'm, I, I feel very passionately about because I think we talk about primary care, secondary care, uh, and we talk about adult social care almost as three and then mental health, I guess, for three stroke four distinct entities. And we often talk about 
primary care as being GPs. And, and I think the reality is, um, is that most people get most of their care outside hospitals. And again, I think, I think you know, the opportunity for ICS is, is to tell that story, is to, is, to, is, to, is to make it clear to people that actually, you know, those, those services, which often you can't see because it's a district nurse in a car, it's a, it's a mental health service um, in, a, in a clinic somewhere, that, that they're not they're unseen services but they're absolutely vital to make the system work and i think the thing that excites me about about the, the work we want to do around ics is is to be talking about that and showcasing some of those community services and those mental health services and the way those things join up together um uh, and how they connect in with with ambulances and how they you know how new roles like physicians associates and and paramedics things play into all of this so i think there's you know there's lots of um, there's, there's lots of opportunity, I think, to tell that broader, connected story, and I think we can do that through regulation. I think I think we you know we are one of the few organisations that can do that on an ongoing basis. I don't think as a, as a country we've ever really been able to do that to quite the same extent. And there'll be an imperative as more clinical care is provided at home, as you as yes, you say, absolutely. And I think also you know, the, when we talk about you know, we, we, I mean, things like virtual wards are a good example of this. I saw an example recently in Newcastle where, uh, ironically, as part of as part of COVID, um, they had decided that bringing immunocompromised cancer patients into a hospital, who, which was full of, of people with COVID, was not a good idea. But equally, they couldn't turn off the, 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 their chemotherapy, so they they created approaches, they created control rooms, and and and, and they invested in a bit of, in bits of kit and so forth to enable people to have chemotherapy at home, be monitored remotely, make sure they could reach into their into their homes and, and very quickly give people support if they if they needed it and it was the patients liked it the patients were having better outcomes because they weren't sitting in a, in a ward all of the time you know it was it was one of those things that covid forced a new way of thinking but it was a it did require quite a lot of effort you know the, the clinical teams were saying well we need we needed to make sure we were connected in with the local gps that the community nursing service and all of these things so you know it's a really good example of a completely different way of of delivering care which was traditionally hospital care but using community resources but what goes with that though is the need to have a really vibrant and well-respected and well-resourced community community service because simply adding more more work onto already overworked GPs is is um, is going to be a real challenge, and and we're going to need to expand uh, the healthcare workforce in social care uh, and the NHS uh, and um, your report and you personally of course on record is saying the importance safety through learning you've highlighted and learning and development is now going to be absolutely key whether it's social care the nhs of course latest stats showed uh, record numbers leaving unfortunately and quite a big cohort over seven thousand record number uh, for work-life balance reasons so if we can touch upon the importance of learning and development and that mechanism to ensure that we have retention yeah i, I think i think it is important i mean it's, it's like it's, a, it's like in any job you know, if you feel you are being invested in, if you feel like you are growing in your in your role, you are more likely to stay in that that career. You become more invested in that career, uh, and I think you know it's it, the simple act of of doing some pretty basic learning and development makes you feel connected to that that career to begin with. But I think I think more importantly, it's the it's the safety component of of, of what. Uh, of what that delivers that's how it's where my interest is because you know 
health and social care is a difficult is a difficult thing to do and sometimes things go wrong uh, and therefore we need the most skilled people to be able to react in the moment to, to deliver the best possible the best possible care and to recognize when things things are, are going are, are, are going wrong so I think the, the, there's an important component there but I think looking ahead when we start to think you know the role that digital services are going to play in, in future you know we need a workforce that is very confident in using digital services can design services that that that, that work using using digital support if we look in the very long term and probably very long terms probably you know maybe 10 years away we're going to start to see next generation therapies we're going to start to see complex medical logistics having to be having to play out in order to give people treatments which are you know at the moment are you know, haven't even been invented today. Now we need to have a workforce that's ready to do that. Uh, we need to have a skill, a set of skills that, that work. And then of course we've got these new, new roles coming in, you know, things like physicians associates. Um, and and it's, it, there's a, there's a real leadership question here around, you know, are we training doctors to get the best out of, of a range of different professionals that they work alongside, you know, because we know that if you're an elderly person, you're going to get care from a nurse, from an occupational therapist, maybe from a physician's associate uh, and a range of other people. And as a doctor, you, you're the, you, you're, in, you're in part delivering direct service, but you're also choreographing the work of other people. And, and, you know, I, I doubt very much if there's a great deal of time and energy spent in medical school training today on on how to how to choreograph a group of other professionals but it's going to be an increasingly important skill uh, in in the next five to ten years well if we can expand upon that because the next five or ten years it seems like a yeah. uh, so far ahead in the future but it's not no. um there is profound transformation envisaged by all the policy makers, particularly in terms of the community care. You've talked about the variegated roles we're going to see, some of which we probably don't even know uh, exist at the moment. But you've touched upon an important point that you've brought up previously in your own report, which is the fundamental importance of leadership right across all uh, clinical cohorts and indeed non-clinical cohorts. I think it's undeniable that it's important. In the private sector, leadership is not regarded as a soft skill. It's a very important, well-evidenced pathway. Can you expand upon, A, how important that is, and B, what can be done, and what do you look for as a regulator uh, across the system? Mm. I mean, I think at its heart when we look at our, our regulation, the way we regulate, what we're looking for is, is this organisation well-led? When things go wrong, does it does it learn from those? Have the leaders in this organisation created an environment that, that's open to learning and improvement? Um, and, and, and have the leaders in this environment uh, or created an environment where, where there's a level of discipline in terms of whether processes are followed and all of those sorts of things to make sure that you know people do get the, the right care. Because you know to get a good experience of of healthcare or or, or 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 social care you need a mix of a careful balance between between care and competence and leadership is about making sure that there's an environment which is caring and is thoughtful but also making sure that people have got the right the right training that they've got the right the right processes are in place and where there are issues that they they get dealt with really really quickly um but i think you know the big leadership challenge for, for now for me is 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 
is, is how leaders are thinking. Because, you know, I always think of leadership in terms of sort of almost three horizons of now, next and future. You know, what, what, what's, what's now? What are the stones in your shoes right now? How are we, what are we doing today, tomorrow? There's then something about, are we then making the investments in, in the, the, the capabilities that we as an organisation need to deliver the best we possibly can in the next two, three years? And then, of course, there's the, the long-term horizon. Have we got one eye on that horizon? Are we making investments? Are we starting to think about services for that very long term? And I think, you know, one of the big challenges for, for now is that leaders are very much in, in that first horizon. They're very much in the dealing with stones in the shoes. And it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult place to get out of. Um, and I have lots of conversations with with senior leaders where they they when I talk talking to them about things like you know the opportunities around digital services and things and they say well look that's very interesting but but actually you know I've got I've got my roof falling in so you know I I, I need to fix the roof before I can do digital services and I and it's difficult to argue that. And, you know, I think part of our role as a regulator is to start to start to call out those sorts of things to sort of say, well, you know, there are some things which maybe require a national response to, to free leaders up at a local level to start to do that, you know, that that next that what's next, what's you know, what's in the future type thinking that for their local populations, which are so important. And presumably, of course, you know, your responsibilities are across the whole uh, of the sector. Um, there is an opportunity for cross-sector, uh, if I can call it that, learning in mm. independent sector, the third sector, uh, as well as um, mm. systems levels across the NHS and social care. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's a good point because if you look at, we're, we're, we're an organisation that's, that's that's 90% of our of our turnover comes from fees. We know we are a fee-funded organisation, but over half of that comes from the private sector, um, whether that's in social care or whether that's in in, in health. So, you know, there's off, we're often sort of assumed to be the NHS regulator. Where we're, you know, that's only half of the story, literally only half of the story. But I think, you know, I, th- I think the private sector are interested in, in doing that learning. They are interested in collaborating. I think they see opportunities in, in the ICS, um, in, in, in the, as ICS has start to become more of a thing. I think they start to see those partnership boards that are being formed in each in each ICS area. Um, they start to see some opportunities there. I, I think there's a there's a degree of scepticism in some places around well the private sector is only in it for the money kind of thing and and there may be you know that may be fair criticism to to some extent but but i do think there is definitely some learning there's you know there's some fantastic work that some some of the big social care groups are doing for example around things like apprentices and so forth and i know you've had people on this on this podcast talking about that you know that's the sort of thing which which could very you know which could be an offer that 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 organizations can make back into the nhs back into into the third sector but i think i think the challenge that we're going to be looking at as part when we're doing our our ics work is is starting to look at the degree to which local authorities are are jumping in and and working collaboratively because you know i i i'm a ex-local authority chief executive and and i i look back on my time as as a chief exec i look back at the the approach that my councillors would take towards the nhs and and there was a there was a sort of scrutiny role that they they took they they took the view that and and i know i didn't completely understand how the nhs worked and 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 what we took a kind of scrutiny role, which was our part of our role was the democratic accountability locally for what was going on in the NHS. I, I think what what ICSs will do is be asking councillors to flip that round to say, actually, you're a partner, you're a delivery partner now, you're not a scrutineer, and that's a different role. Uh, and I think you know some places 
you know, have already have already made that that transition and are already well on that journey. Some places haven't, and I think, you know, we're going to what we as a regulator think that we can potentially do is to start to start to bring some of those conversations together um, to see to see if we can start to get people all in the same room, uh, really having the right sorts of conversations. Well, um, on that clarion call for collaboration, uh, I'd like to thank you, uh, Ian Trenholm, for your time and uh, for your wisdom. Great, good to see you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please like, follow or subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts from. And if you truly want to understand how we are enabling the healthcare workforce of the future, please visit newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash voices of care. In the meantime, I'm Sahel Mirza. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.